Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Welcome back to Keep It. This is Ira Madison the third. I'm Louis Bertel, the first and definitely last. My name is Aida Osman, and at the world's rate, probably the last. <laughs> Fun while it lasted. Yeah, I know. We tried our best. We popped into Earth, saw what was going on. Might leave soon. <laughs> Good try. Good try. I don't know what you all are talking about. <laughs> I feel hopeful for the future. I have my kente cloth on. <laughs> Oh, good. Are you kneeling? But, sir, are you kneeling? I am kneeling. I will be (laughs) kneeling during the entire podcast. Good. In solidarity. I have to give it up to a crooked friend, Naomi Ekparrigan, who responded to a photo of Nancy Pelosi uh, kneeling in that kente cloth. (laughs) You can't even imitate this woman's delivery because it's both so straightforward (laughs) and so insane. (laughs) Naomi Ekparrigan's becoming one of my favorite comics just ever. One of the best comedic tones. Yeah, she does have one of the best voices. I'm always trying to solve it because it's like she's making fun of somebody who works in HR all the time (laughs) while a slight amount of insanity is always creeping in. Anyway, figure it out yourself. being a full black woman, guys, just so you know. (laughs) Oh, yes. You don't even know. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I am so pressed about the Kente cloth situation. I'm not going to yell for too long, but it's just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I think I pretty much talked about it before when I talked about Nancy and her her stunts and shows. Nancy Pelosi. She's, she's doing. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi will be doing close oh magic soon at this rate. <laughs> Sleight of hand. Let's go, girl. <laughs> Well, Nancy aside, I am very excited this week that we will be joined by a friend of mine, Kimberly Drew, um, and we will talk about her new book, This Is What I Know About Art, and we'll also be getting into a conversation about queer reality television. Sure. There are some new shows out there, and um, some other shit that happened this week, so... We'll be right back. We always get into other shit. I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast, I would say, but it yeah. tends to diverge. I would say we so dabble. look forward. I know. <laughs> In all things <laughs> pop culture. Exciting news. Ahead of this year's elections, the team at Crooked has been hard at work trying to find the best ways for all of you to impact its results aside from casting your own ballot. Now they have an answer. Vote Save America's brand new Adopt-A-State program. The Adopt-A-State program lets you directly support the work of organizers, volunteers, and candidates in the six key battleground states that will be most important to winning a progressive majority in 2020. And those are, of course, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina. When you sign up to Adopt-A-State at votesaveamerica.com adopt, you'll get specific calls to action. Things you can do yourself from home right now. That will make a huge impact on the races in these states. What state are you going to adopt? Oh, gosh. Well, 
due to the Madonna credibility, I think I will have to pick Michigan. Mm. She does make fun of them an awful lot, and I feel bad for them. They just have a bunch of peninsulas. They're fine people. <laughs> I will, of course, be picking my home state of Wisconsin. Will they take you? They'll take you back? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I'm going to start doing Keep It Wisconsin Edition. Just me in a field with a cow talking about the election. Lots of lakes, <laughs> the occasional tall tree. Anyway, you can adopt a state now at votesaveamerica.com slash adopt. So I assume we're back to consuming some form of culture this week. I could provide another reading list for our white listeners. But it's like, did you read? Did you read? I know y'all ain't read them damn books in a week. I ran the numbers. Every white person read every one of them. Isn't that nice? Everyone is now part of the solution. (laughs) There was actually a very great Vulture article about anti-racism reading lists from um, Lauren Michelle Jackson, who I adore. And it was basically about like who is an anti-racism reading list for. And yes, in theory, it is to expand your mind on um, black lives, you know, and sort of confront the latent racism that you exhibit. However, you know, if you're just reading... Baldwin's fire next time, you know, to learn about race. <laughs> You're going to miss some of the, like, language and beauty in it. Um, so, you know, obviously I love a reading list. I gave one. But <laughs> you should read them twice, you yes. know? Because I feel like once you read to, like, get something, then you should read it to take in the language. To fully and comprehend. that's just something that is missed. When I read Langston Hughes or James Baldwin or Gwendolyn Brooks, I often scream out loud, but what's in it for me, you know? And um, (laughs) I don't get anything from it. I don't see my name in the text. How do I know they're talking to me? Not that many Lewises in literature. Louis Sachar, I guess he writes about Lewises. And even if there were, they're all of the Carol variety and you don't even spell it that way. So what are you to do? That's what what I'm saying. Yeah, right. (laughs) I'm not an English Lewis. Jesus. Check out this jawline. Pure Germany. (laughs) But yes, we are back to consuming content. Begrudgingly. Weirdly enough, most of the culture that I have been consuming this week has been resignation letters. Oh, sure. Oh, yes, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck Gemini season. Uh, Resignation season is here. Make me a playlist. I need a playlist of all the resignation letters you're bumping this week. First of all, I think this was right after we recorded last week that the New York Times op-ed section published a piece by Senator Tom Cotton, a um, white man who looks like a brontosaurus. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he has a very long neck. Well, that's redundant. And it is, it is very unsettling. <laughs> I have to say, um, you know what's like an underrated insult that you never hear anymore? It's super old-fashioned. Pencil neck. It's just so important. Like, I think okay. lobbing pencil neck at people, like, we can bring that back. I feel like it's something they might have said on the show, Hey Arnold, or something. <laughs> <laughs> hey, stoop kid. Yeah, right. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> He wrote a op-ed for the New York Times which called for widespread military intervention to quell the peaceful protests around the country last week, the protests that we were talking about. And, of course, there was outcry uh, from the public, but also from Times staffers themselves. And it ended up with 
opinion editor James Bennett publishing an editorial explaining his choice to publish the cotton piece, arguing that the primary problem was that it was published, quote-unquote, without context. Oh, you don't say. Then... He admitted that he hadn't read the piece before publication, and then he had resigned by Sunday. Okay, when I heard that, that he didn't fucking read the thing, first of all, if that happened at a college newspaper, that would be disappointing, period, let alone the New York Times. But secondly, I was wondering if that was a lie he told because it sounded better than actually having to reconcile with what was inside the piece you know (laughs) like if 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 that somehow felt more flattering to him to be like well i didn't read it you know it was a total accident things just slip into the paper sometimes yeah i would rather be negligent than stupid so i I think you're right (laughs) i think you're right what an idiot i found the entire thing fascinating because of course it is part of the ongoing quote-unquote culture war between the right and the left, right? This idea that we have to be objective and we have to put all of the ideas into a newspaper. And it's just dumb because, one, it assumes that people like Tom Cotton are arguing things in good faith. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there's any way that telling the military to come in and quell protesters is an argument that can be made in good faith, mm-hmm. you know? Why are all these publications rushing to make editorials right now? If you don't have an opinion, you can't write an op-ed. What is going on? I thought there was something strange just in general about the piece. It lacked information. It's the kind of thing where he compensated for information with condescension. He kept saying things like, people who don't know their history are arguing the opposite of what I'm saying. And it's like, you're not telling me anything about the history or those people. It's just, you sound like a white guy at a cocktail party being like, those people, you know? (laughs) And then, of course, you have people like um, Barry Weiss, who's at the New York Times, uh, who will never find an awful opinion that she won't defend, going after it. Olivia Nuzzi is another person who is doing it. And you you just sort of end up with this concept of people saying, if we don't publish it, it's like we're censoring things. And I really thought that after all this time, someone would have read the fucking First Amendment at all, (laughs) ever. People talk about it so much. And yet they always seem to miss the fact that the New York Times not publishing an op-ed from someone is not censorship. Uh, You have standards. Uh, (laughs) You are a a private institution. Uh, It's not the government censoring your thought. And so many people kept arguing that we needed this information, otherwise it was being quelled. And I just don't ever see an argument for a sitting senator you not knowing what he's thinking, right? Like, he had already tweeted the sentiment that was in this op-ed a day prior. People seen it. He has all of these followers who are going to see it. So it didn't need to be amplified by the New York Times. And then you have, I don't know, this. there was a recent resignation, too, of... Um, the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit. <laughs> no, I have to tell you, I'm not somebody who like watches a Wes Anderson-looking video of someone preparing a salad, which is what Bon Appetit and 
whatever this workshop thing is called. So mm-hmm. you you need to bring me up to Test speed a kitchen. little bit. Yes, that's what it is. That is one of the things that has confused me the most, right? Bon Appetit is a food magazine for Condé Nast. Mm-hmm. And Test Kitchen is this uh, series of videos that I guess just has like the Bon Appetit team sort of hanging out and cooking things in the kitchen. There's, I don't know. There's people who watch these videos and follow these people and um, are just get really attached to watching other people cooking or like as a group, etc. I was very shocked when all of this news was coming out. It was the same thing as with the Allison Roman story, right? I, I feel like I'm just always shocked by the amount of people who are deeply ingrained in like internet video food culture it is also lewis a concept foreign to me just the idea of sitting down and watching some people cooking is weird even though i watch like cooking shows i was gonna say one thing's not gonna happen i'm not gonna make the food and two <laughs> i can't guarantee that what you made is any good even when i watch top Truly. chef i'm like this is a conspiracy maybe it all tastes like shit <laughs> there's also no guarantee that i'm getting to the end of the video in <laughs> right the first that place mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Truly is one of the wildest things that we have all sort of just accepted. I think about that every time I watch Top Chef too, particularly this last week when a chef that I love went home uh, <laughs> right before the finale this week. And um, it's you're watching this food being made and you're seeing like Padma and Tom uh, and whatever guest judge they have who is a James Beard winner and uh, a two Michelin star restaurant in Idaho, they are always coming up with some like minor comments about the food. And there's no way that you can tell if these criticisms are real or not. <laughs> or, or even if it would bother you if you tasted it. Like if you're getting down to the minutiae yeah. of how food tastes, I'm like, would I even fucking notice that? I'm not saying my palate is what they need on that panel. I'm just saying I can't tell how valuable their insights are because, you know, I'll eat like a Nerf ball if you put Hershey yeah. syrup on it. And it might have yeah. a good mouthfeel. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I yeah. have to try mm-hmm. the nurse. Lewis's palate, I would never let judge anything, to be <laughs> honest. I mean, <laughs> don't travel anywhere with Lewis because he will not want to go to a restaurant with no. you. He'll find McDonald's. Everybody are, is wrong about you're food, McDon- guys. Again with the McDonald's? I feel like, Lewis, are you a, are you a grab a rotisserie chicken from the grocery store and eat that for a week kind of guy? Oh, you've got it. Oh, oh my God. God. Oh. <laughs> not only have I been red, I've been vivisected, torn apart. <laughs> fragmented um, here <laughs> but keep it the thing that happened here which was similar to say the new york times adam rapaport the editor-in-chief resigned on monday after a photo of him in brown face resurfaced <laughs> but the thing that i want to point out is that so many outlets are framing this as the editor-in-chief resigned after a photo of him in brown face surface. You know, like there mm-hmm. was an Instagram where he was dressed. Our Boricua um, king. Our Puerto Rican Boricua right? king. By the way, I would have just thought it was the lighting or filter if the photo itself didn't point out that he's supposed to be like Puerto Yes, Rican. or if his wife's baby hairs weren't laid all the way down like that. Right? <laughs> what people are ignoring, however, is that Many former and current staffers were calling him out for 
a culture of racism that exists at Bon Appetit. You know, we were finding out that um, white editors who were in these test kitchen videos were being paid to be in them. People of color who were in the videos were not really being paid or they were being paid only like $400 a pop. Um, And there was just this idea that we talked about with Allison of um, this major food magazine that's pushing knowledge of different food cultures is basically just sort of um, colonializing it, you know? It's like having these white people cook these dishes, um, putting a white face on it, having non-white people do the labor, uh, and then really just sort of creating this awful culture for employees. And um, now it even Mm -hmm. has, as of this morning, like Condé Nast, you know, being like, well, we we didn't know that um, so many people were so upset, you know, about pay disparities and et cetera. And <laughs> I find that to be bullshit. And <laughs> two, I just wanted to mention that that is the framing that you should be talking about because that's where a lot of these resignations are coming from this week, right? Yeah. Um, they're not just from minor incidents like a photo. If that were the case, then investigative journalist Yashar, who <laughs> has decided that um, he is going to destroy Alison Roman for Chrissy Teigen, <laughs> when he, like, the other day posted a photo of her that was supposed to be her in Chola face, it was actually just a Halloween photo of her dressed as Amy Winehouse. <laughs> is that true? Uh, I didn't know that that was yeah, the upshot yeah. of that whole yeah. controversy. It was like she was dressed as Amy Winehouse. It was the hoops and everything. And there was even a moment where he was like, you know, I've never seen Amy Winehouse in hoops like this. This is clearly Chola face. And people were responding with photos of Amy Winehouse in hoop earrings, uh, which is the thing she wore often. Uh, but that's just to say that people are not being canceled for old Halloween photos. Adam Rappaport's resignation was because of a culture that he was fostering at this company. And I think the James Bennett thing is sort of the same thing too. You know, it was like, what kind of um, culture are you creating if you are bringing in people like Tom Cotton to do op-eds, which are dangerous to black people and the black people that you work with at the New York Times? And um, also the executive editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer who stepped down because they said buildings matter too, like right in the thrush of everything that's going on right now. <laughs> we love to see that. What, is he in the pocket of Legos? What is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I love a good wordplay. I love a good wordplay. Let, let Stan come back. <laughs> Speaking of the pocket of Legos, I just want to say, I watched... I know that we're all watching Insecure, but Molly's new special came out. Yvonne Orji's special came out on HBO Max, and HBO Max is honestly proving to be that girl for me because I watched that, and I watched Michaela Cole's new show, I May Destroy You. I just needed to escape, and I know that usually I had forgotten that I use television as recreation, as job, as enjoyment, and I, through all of this, of course, had forgotten that. So I just watched so much TV this week, and I've never felt more balanced, more put together. Rami season two came out. Just like last week, I forgot I was gay. This week, I forgot I was Muslim. So watching Rami season two was just, (laughs) alhamdulillah, I'm back. How was the Yvonne Orji special? Because I didn't even know she was a stand-up. I just thought she was an actress on Insecure. Yep. And she was amazing. She was absolutely amazing. She riffs on a lot of things. She's very, very funny, high energy. And it's intercut with a lot of her going back to Nigeria. And apparently her father is like a chief. She's a stereotype, and I love that for her. <laughs> okay. I have not seen it, 
but um, I support her. She's nothing like Molly, <laughs> and that makes it tolerable. Good for me. Good because Molly is trash. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a trash friend. <laughs> what about you, Lewis? Um, you been here comes some quaint watching. Uh, super old. Uh, also game show related. Get ready. Um, I don't know why I've decided to watch episodes and episodes and episodes of this. It's, it's a game show I've always loved, but I think it feels like a particularly fun brain teaser and brain exercise right now. I've been watching the old game show Password, uh-huh. which in the 60s, they would have celebrity contestants play and then they'd bring on regular contestants along with them. But if you're not familiar with Password, there have been a couple versions since of Super Password and Password Plus. They're variations on the same thing. But you basically just have to describe a mystery word to your partner using a one-word clue. So like, if I were playing with Aida and the word were mystery, I might say enigma. And then you would either get it or you wouldn't. And then the I other wouldn't. team. Yeah, I okay, wouldn't. There you are. There you are. <laughs> um, and then the other team would get a chance. I, I feel like in the past week, something I've been reconciling with is I think people are desperate to be articulate. I think people want to be um, participate in a, a really urgent conversation that's happening right now. That is not about game shows. I do not mean to lump, lump password into this. But <laughs> it's it's been nice to think about how better to utilize all the words in your brain in a fun way. And I feel like this show really does it. And I want I want to recommend specifically episodes with Betty White, the greatest celebrity game show contestant who ever lived, mm-hmm. Carol Burnett, who's a lot of fun, and Elizabeth Montgomery from Bewitched, specifically because... Not only are they great, they're always up against male opponents who are so, to borrow an old internet word, pressed to lose to them every single time. (laughs) Watch Peter Lawford bite down on his lip while Carol Burnett kicks his ass. It is such joy. And it's like the one time that like a celebrity would go on TV and not he wouldn't have every uh, word scripted for him, right? So there's a weird candor to watching these things too. But anyway, Password's one of the greatest uh, games ever, and I cannot stop watching it or playing it with my friends, which you can do over Zoom in quarantine. Leave it to Lewis to find a suitable example that didn't make me feel like he was being dismissive of what's going on right now. How did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like fun to study the language. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're no, right. I mean, like, even just talking about books we were offering, I was offering people last week, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I feel like we're in this sort of culture moment right now where, yes, people do want to be articulate, but people also are maybe finally reconciling the fact that, like, we don't know everything. And it's nice to um, read up on things that you just don't get. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, one of the biggest culture conversations right now is police. You know, we were talking about that last week, um, just sort of how like Hollywood sort of glorifies them. And now the conversation has dipped around to, you know, how do we deal with police departments? You know, should we be defunding police? Should we be reforming police? Should we be abolishing police? And a lot of people were watching that last week tonight with John Oliver thing where he was sort of explaining it and it's been interesting watching so many people have these conversations particularly you know then a joe biden is wading into it uh (laughs) where he's saying we're not doing that um and then you have an uh ocasio-cortez saying that the phrase defund the police is a lot like a black lives matter a lot of politicians were afraid of saying that phrase years ago Mm -hmm. and now everyone is saying it everyone i think has just been going so hard with, you need to have an opinion on this right now. Obviously, I'm of the opinion that so many of our police departments need to be defunded, particularly 
Los Angeles. Uh, I think we all went through this past week of protests just realizing that Garcetti and um, the LAPD chief, um, Michael Moore, are sort of just fucking things up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so is um, our DA, Jackie Lacey. And there's actually a um, great Pod Save America interview with George Gascon, who's running against her, even though I am reticent to recommend anything that Jon Favreau um, is involved in. Pencil neck culture right there. That's pencil neck culture. Pencil neck culture. Does he have a pencil neck? Uh, I mean, like, I would compare his neck to mine and I would put myself in it. So we'll say that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that it is a conversation that's obviously worth having and will continue having, you know. But, like, I was like, bitch, I don't know the difference between defunding and abolition um and i'm like abolition that's just making me think of slave shit so here's me giving books again you know i got um angela davis's our prisons obsolete mm-hmm. i've been reading that i was re- reading um alexis vital's um book the end of policing and you know there's also like ruth gilmore who has been a prison abolitionist for years there was a great new york times profile of her that came out last year and davis has interviewed in it too and i think it's a great thing to read if only because um i feel like we've long talked about that book the new jim crow yeah by michelle alexander and one really interesting part of the interview is that uh, michelle alexander is asked about people reading that book and thinking that the main problem is sort of private prisons and the prison industrial complex and how it is a lot like slavery. Um, And one of the things that is on the mind of people who sort of want to end policing in prisons is that that isn't necessarily true. And that um, if you push the narrative that prisons are only filled with like nonviolent offenders, it ignores what we as a society need to do to deal with violence and, this author of the Jim Crow was, you know, just like she does think it's sort of a failure of some academics to not adequately respond to violence in our culture and whether or not we should just be responding with violence like prisons <laughs> to violence. So I think that those are just interesting reads and are changing a lot of the conversation that we've all been having. And I think that it would do everyone a good service to be reading shit um, before you are, I mean, jump into conversations. I mean, it's fun to tweet out, like, defund the police, in the police, <laughs> et cetera. Um, but you should then actually do the work of finding out what all of this means. I love how this started with Ira vowing that he wouldn't give a reading list only for you to turn around <laughs> and do it. So look at that, ladies and gentlemen. Look at that. But I also wanted to say that back to what you were saying, Lewis, about how you know everyone is dying to be articulate during this time because they want to be part of the conversation for whatever their motives are, hopefully good ones. But I only ask that people speak in the preliminary phase, which is you know vowing that they are anti-racist and that they're doing the work to be anti-racist. And then the secondary phase where you're reading the books is the quiet phase learn and then you can come back and maybe offer something to the conversation but why why people act like we're asking a lot of them right now like i have a lot of white coworkers even who are like i don't know what to do what should i do am i doing enough and i'm boo boo i'm not here to tell you that <laughs> oh do you know what a movie i always am thinking about when you talk about um, conversations like that. The Help? Uh, no, which is Netflix's most popular movie. Number one in the nation, <laughs> Guys, Viola Davis herself has dismissed this film. You need to not be watching The Help. Okay. 
This is such a strange movie to bring up, and I don't believe I've ever brought it up on this podcast before, but have you ever mm. seen Orange County with Colin Hanks and Jack Black? Baby, first of all, I saw that movie opening day. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, it came out like 2003? Yes, right. So I was in high school. Any movie that came out like when we were in high school. And we're high school students who were just like in the movies and shit. Had nothing uh, to do. You were hard pressed to find like a movie from the period from just like high school through college where I wasn't there opening week. Oh, I know. Day. No, uh, specifically the summer of 2001. I saw everything from the others to Rat Race. Guys, things I would never see otherwise. Yeah. But um, It's like, why did I go see Gossip? Yes, exactly. Okay, okay but in Orange County... Uh, Colin Hanks is trying to get into college, uh, precocious kid, and his mom is played by Catherine O'Hara, who is the mm. stereotype of a wine-drunk, woozy, Orange County mom. And there's a part in the movie where he's trying to get into college. He says, Mom, can you just do the very least right now? Like, just trying to get on the same page with her. And she immediately looks drowsy. She's exhausted. And as as he's asking her this, she wanders back to her huge bed with a thousand pillows on it, takes each of the pillows off one by one, like throwing them on the floor, and immediately goes to take a nap. And that has reminded me of this dynamic, which is to say, you know, there are a lot of white people who are like, what can I do? And then the minute you actually really get their attention and get direct, they're exhausted. Then, <laughs> as you keep talking about it, it's all about them. They're like, oh, why are you stressing me out? Like, this is stressful. Like, aren't there other things I can do? And it's like, there are so many layers of dissonance there that they don't think are there. They think they're, you know, being rational for the most part. Mm -hmm. So I keep thinking about that movie. Girl, there was somebody in my <laughs> mentions last week just like going on and on about how somehow we were just shaming white people oh uh, my God. by pointing mm -hmm. out that flooding the Black Lives Matter hashtag on Instagram maybe wasn't helpful for anybody. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. <laughs> and I'm like, if your first response is, to black people talking about what you should be doing in this moment is to worry about your hurt feelings. I don't know what to tell you, you know? There's always someone who's like, if you were this better, if you're a little nicer to me, then you'll help me understand this. I'm like, well, listen, if you acting as if black people having um, justice is dependent on whether or not someone is nice to you, then you really don't care about it in the first place. Yeah. Commit to discomfort. I mean, you're going to cry. Sorry. It's about yeah. crying. That's in this, this that's, in, that's in this stage. Yeah. Also, stop asking black people to package things in nice little boxes and bows for you. I can't. This is, it's mm -hmm. ugly. Like, it's a very ugly thing that we're trying to unpack. As gay people, we go through this shit too, you know? Yeah. Like, always a straight person is just like, please don't make me uncomfortable with this mm -hmm. stuff. And it's like, Girl, I don't know what else to do for you. <laughs> <laughs> I can't make it a game. Yeah, right. <laughs> go to go to Bank of America. <laughs> Get a pride sticker. <laughs> also, Ira is a bad example sometimes because you provide so many good resources that people like will go to any black person and be like, can I get a reading list? And it's so rude to expect all black people to be educated about their blackness uh. because we're not even in a situation where we uh. are encouraged to be educated about our own blackness, you know? I am actually much nicer to white people in the context of this podcast than I am in real life. Oh, in real life? Lewis, you're the only one I might talk to. That's you what might I'm be saying. the only one I talk to. Oh, if you, if you guys can't see through this ruse, I mean, you're ruse. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, we'll be right back with um, the delightful Kimberly Drew. 
Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. <laughs> While still in college in 2011, Kimberly Drew, a.k.a. Museum Mammy, on Twitter and Instagram, started a Tumblr called Black Contemporary Art to elevate Black artists for young and digital audiences. She's managed social media for The Met, curated the Obama White House's Instagram, and has just released her first book, This Is What I Know About Art. I'm very excited to have my friend and fellow Leo, Kimberly Drew, here on Keep It for the first Ooh, time. Oh, here we go. Oh. Is it three I already Leos? know what time it is. It's three Leos, one podcast. Wait, who else is a Leo? Oh, I'm a Leo right here. Yes. Yes. August 4th, just like Barack. Oh, I love that. <laughs> um, but I am so excited to have you here after reading your uh, debut book. This is what I know about art. Congratulations. Uh, I poured through it last night. It's great. I, I think that um, I have a lot to ask just about, first of all, your career and how you got to this point, too, before we even talk about the book and its ideas about art and activism. So many people will know you from your um, Twitter and Instagram handle, which is Museum Mammy. Which radicalized and... me at <laughs> 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 an early age. <laughs> I feel like I've never even learned where the idea for that name came from. Because, of course, this week is the week when everyone's like, here are black people you should follow. And so I've been getting (laughs) just run down by people who are like, do you know that mammy is a derogatory term? And I'm like, no shit. Um, (laughs) Like, you think I'm new here? Um, When I was an undergraduate at Smith College, I studied museum studies as part of like my educational path and for my um, like thesis project, I wrote about digital communications in museums. When I started that project, my original uh, handle was Maud Mammy. Um, the first part Maud coming from Gwendolyn Brooks book, Maud Martha, mm-hmm. um, which I felt 
at the time, and I guess now too, um, was such an, a brilliant example of what it meant to write about, um, I guess, the subconscious of a black protagonist. Um, I think there's rare instances where we actually hear Maude Martha's voice, but we know exactly the ways in which she's observing the world. Um, and I think that that, for me, especially at that time, was where I was at, whereas like, I had a lot of critical thinking, but wasn't always afforded the opportunity of that dynamism. And I personally have always loved the word mammy because I think it is a term that we need to reclaim um, and not necessarily use in the way that I'm using it. I don't endorse that. Like having people call me by my fucking handle in public is not something I accounted for. (laughs) Wow. I am. That's too bad. Yeah. I haven't even thought of people just running into you IRL and being like, oh my God, Museum Mammy. Mammy, Mammy. <laughs> no, literally, literally people call me Mammy and it is one of the more disruptive things that happens to me in, on a regular basis. One of my bosses, um, who is French, used to call me Museum Mummy because she didn't know okay. what the word was. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, okay. Um, but at any rate, uh, the history of the word Mammy, um, it's a derogatory term that was used to reference, uh, black women, specifically black domestic workers. Um, and I think as I have grown and matured, I really want to rethink the ways in which I see that type of labor, the labor of care, um, the labor of being maybe head of household, if that's your journey. Um, and then of course, thinking about queer icon, Hattie McDaniel, who sure. mm-hmm. won, who was the first black woman to win an Oscar, um, who was playing a mammy figure. And so I've been always really attracted to that term and word. And once I was, you know, in deep in my studies in digital communications, um, I changed my handle from Maud Mammy to Museum Mammy and have stayed Museum Mammy since. I have a question about specifically Smith College. Once upon a time, <laughs> Seven Sisters Colleges were super kind of glamorized in the U.S. Like, you know, Catherine Hepburn went to Bryn Mawr and you'd hear like Jane Fonda mm-hmm. went to Vassar. There's a, there was a really famous book called The Group about a, a bunch of women at Vassar. And I only learned upon uh, seeing that you went to Smith's College that it is in fact the biggest of the Seven Sisters schools. What was that experience like for you in becoming, you know, this art expert and art curator person? Was it super formative? I think for me, my journey towards a like a Seven Sister Women's College started long before I ever thought I was going to go to college. My aunt is actually a Wellesley graduate and a homosexual as well. So it was definitely like a thing that was introduced to me at an early age. And then I, I, in high school, went to a super conservative prep school in Newport, Rhode Island called St. George's School. And I think that experience of being, one, the only black woman in my grade, but two, trying to struggle to figure out uh, what my role could be in the world, Smith really appealed to me as, as an educational environment because it just seemed like a place where women's voices were heard. And once I got into school, like every, there were a few Smithies who worked at my high school, which still to this day perplexes me because it's such a like really challenging environment. But they were, there was like this whisper network where they'd be like, you're a Smithy now, you know, like there's this real (laughs) almost gang-like mentality that Smithies have and a warm embrace that happens for the most part, but is also not everyone's story, um, but was definitely mine. Um, So for me, it was like being invited into a community. That's probably the biggest imprint that Smith left on me. And then Smith College also has a museum on campus. And so being able to have a soft journey into the art world as a museum educator, because I was a museum educator before I was anything else. Um, I was a terrible museum educator also, I should say. (laughs) Like shout out to all the museum educators because you guys do... God's work. And I honestly don't know how you do it. Um, 
but at any rate, it was the resources that were provided on campus that really helped me figure it out because I grew up knowing about art. I grew up going to museums, but it wasn't until I was on that campus that those things fused together for me. Speaking of, there's, you know, a funny thing that we've been talking about on this podcast too, especially as people who care about pop culture or curating information for people. And like for you during this time, as someone who's created this identity, being a a curator of being an informant, like culturally, have you had to redefine your relationship with your identity right now? Are you struggling through this time? Or are you, are you living a good life? (laughs) That's funny. Have I, I mean, I think in general, I was actually looking at this interview I did five years ago um, because Signe Gore, who's an incredible black woman journalist, was reposting some of her old clips. And in the piece, I wrote that my blackness is always in a state of maturation. And I, five years later, still believe that to be true. I don't think I've ever at a point in my life been like, I am not any of the intersections of my identity, even coming into my own queerness, like, I think that was probably the one that I was trying to articulate the most and like gender is woo. But um, (laughs) I think in in this moment in general, I'm just always trying to figure out how to best articulate myself in the world and figure out really what my own subjectivity um, can mean for myself. And then perhaps as a tool to help in kind of the general liberation of people across identities, especially as a writer too. Like I think of writing as a liberatory action. And so um, that's probably the, where most of my interrogation of self happens, Mm -hmm. um, that and therapy. I was really interested in a moment in your book where you sort of describe doing a art walk and sort of how there needs to be something personal in invitations to exhibits, you know, some sort of human element to inspire people to visit museums how do we go about even getting people into these spaces? I've been thinking so much about this week when everyone's been, like you said, when people tagging us, like, uh, these are black voices to follow, right? And like, for me, I'm like, I can say, read this book or like watch this film. Um, and weirdly, I did this exhibit in Omaha, Nebraska, um, where um I curated a film experience or a bunch of films, but it was also alongside an exhibit called 30 Americans, which had like black artwork from the Rubo family collection. And Mm -hmm. it was interesting seeing people there at the museum and seeing like, oh, this is something that was curated alongside of this film experience. But, you know, just the concept of coming up with suggesting art to people in this time, like what is that process like? And How can you do that? I've been meditating a lot on individual responsibility when it comes to the arts. I think in many instances, it is kind of the first step to critique institutions, which is a valuable and important work to do. But I also think each of us has the individual agency and authority to introduce someone to art or artists. That is a thing that we can all do. And so I think a lot about that art walk, especially that art work experience and where my brain was at, you know, circa 2014, I had just thought that people weren't going to museums because they couldn't find other people to go with them, which in some cases I think is true. Um, But in other cases, of course, there's all the other logistics around access or around um, socioeconomic difference or around general ways in which uh, security is trained to receive visitors who may not look like their traditional visitor set. Mm -hmm. But I think especially in this moment, a moment wherein 
we aren't going to exhibitions in the way that we're traditionally used to or accustomed to, it's really important to think about, yeah, what we can each individually do to share the things we love with each other. Because in the same way that you share a playlist, in the same way that you share a recipe, in the same way that you might, should I buy these boots, you know, with someone, you can do that. (laughs) (laughs) You can absolutely do that with art because it is a way to communicate value. It is a way to communicate information. Like this moment right now, people are out in the streets and protesting it's graphic design, it's illustrations that are helping people to wayfind in this moment. That's art. There's so few parts of our life that don't touch art. And so I think it's important for us to just empower ourselves to believe in our own ability to participate in that dialogue. Um, because there's a lot of different ways to participate that aren't just art historical texts. I think people are often daunted by art because they're afraid they're not going to get it or they're afraid they're going to be quote unquote wrong about it, you know, talking about it. Do you find that you spend a lot of time or more time than you want demystifying art for people? And if you do demystify art for people, what are methods you enjoy? Yeah, I don't really have any level of exhaustion around guiding people towards art. I think I have some exhaustion, more exhaustion around people who are already in the arts. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know um, what? That tracks. That tracks. Yeah. Um, people trying to like say like what is art and what is not is actually way more annoying <laughs> of an argument than I don't get it. I think for me in general, I'm kind of perplexed by it. And so I'm always down to have that dialogue where I'm like, who hurt you? You know, <laughs> like that's always I'm just like, what experience did you have? that you thought you had to be an expert. Like what experience did you have that you thought that you were going to go into this space of education and learning and the the price of the ticket was knowledge, you know? That's so strange. You don't go into every movie theater ex- like having read the plot before you watch the movie. Like that's not required of you. Um, I actually personally, any of my friends can attest, I hate spoilers, so never send me a spoiler or I'll block you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's that. It's like I think exhibitions and the opportunity to engage in art experiences, I want the kind of discourse around that to change towards um, a mode of education and fulfillment and nourishment even, as opposed to this like intellectual call to arms where you have to stand a certain way and tilt your head to the left and look for a certain amount of time to really truly be respected as an art viewer. I feel like you largely helped me with that. Like not anything that you physically did, but I just feel like watching the way that you used to curate art on your Instagram, you know, um, or even just photos of yourself looking at art or just in a museum. Mm-hmm. It just largely reminded me too, like Lewis said, of theater. You know, I came up in the theater and for me, it, the concept of like dressing up in a suit and something and going to theater is wild mm-hmm. to me. Um, and I don't know what, took that moment for me to translate that to museums where I'm like, yeah, you don't need to be dressed up a certain way to go to a museum. Just wear whatever the fuck you want to wear. Stand around and look at the art and take it in. Um, And I think it was just sort of seeing your Instagram was sort of helped me realize that you can go to museums casually. You don't have to sit there digest an entire piece of art for like 10 minutes um, have a dissertation ready to go right when you leave yeah yeah you know and it's like if you're walking through a museum like take in what intrigues you what catches your eye and like if a piece doesn't you can also just keep moving pay it dust (laughs) (laughs) 
And I'm, th- I think this is a testament to you and also the age that we're in and how information is dispersed, but you have this unique opportunity to be in direct contact with the artists that you are sharing, you know, their art with the rest of the world. And has that affected like your relationships with these artists? How are you able to have them? Is it different in this way? Because I mean, you're a curator, but it's, it's so different because it's not a brick and mortar museum, you know? So how is that relationship like? Are those relationships that you foster? Yeah, the vast majority of my exes are artists. <laughs> <laughs> oh, girl. <laughs> oh! Um, but yeah, it's always an interesting path and, and, and road. I, I often get called a gatekeeper, which is probably like the worst thing that you could call mm-hmm. me. Um, them's fighting words. But um, yeah, I think... <laughs> For me, the thing that's most important is having connection, especially because I work in relationship to the field and study of contemporary art. That means that a lot of the people that I'm working with or engaging with are alive. And so being able to connect with them is one, an opportunity to learn for me, to educate, you know, to others, and then also just to like pay respect to them, right? It's not like we're reading Shakespeare and sitting around and trying to figure out what he was saying, like... That person is a lot like literally they're sitting right there, you know, Um, and so opportunities to do public dialogues with artists or to go on Instagram live or whatever with artists, um, I think is one of the great gifts, especially when thinking about what it means to be representative of a marginalized community, because oftentimes the artist's voices aren't privileged in the ways that they could be. I think Mm -hmm. that there's ways in which we could better platform and listen to artists. Uh, we're in a moment right now in which many museums and institutions of art are trying to uh, figure out a quick way to make sure that they let their constituents know that they stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. Some institutions have chosen to share work by black artists, but what would it mean for them to actually share the voices of those artists? What would it mean for them to more actively engage with those artists because they are living? What does it mean that a black artist gets an email from a museum using their work that hasn't actually contacted them first for permission to use their work? Like, what's up with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also, like, I was seeing so many conversations this week too just about um, in the concept of protests and like riots and looting, et cetera, right? I mean, what that means as far as museums which have historically taken work from other cultures um, and as institutions um, have these histories and you know just sort of saying Black Lives Matter um, and putting um, like an art exhibition up from a black artist doesn't really fix you know centuries of harm. Yeah and the thing about it in terms of the history of museums I think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of museums are started from private collections Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. a lot of the ways in which we look at a history of you know some people say theft or um, acquisition is a lot of things that like individual people did and then those choices and actions became institutionalized. And so it's important to also take this time to educate ourselves about the ways in which museum collections are built, how they've evolved over time and what they can do for a public. Because I think sometimes, especially like as much as I love Black Panther and that incredible scene and engagement between um, Killmonger and the curator, which he just straight up murdered and no one had issue with. Um, <laughs> it's like, um, That's okay. why I tell people that he's a villain when people try to be like, oh, we love 100%. Killmonger. I'm like, he killed the curator. <laughs> I'm like, um, I don't know about 
about you, but I don't really fucks with violence against women, but like go off. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, I think it, it really spoke to a wound that a lot of people feel um, and really helped galvanize people in a way that I think was really helpful for the field in general. Um, but I hope that in this moment, the takeaway is to figure out what is the foundation on which a lot of these spaces are built? Because you cannot dismantle something without understanding its root and source. That's basic math. Mm -hmm. Like if you can't see the, like, it's like an iceberg. Like if you can't see the depths of it, you just think you're fucking with an ice cube. And like, that's not the case, especially not for these types of institutions. What would you say is the ideal museum experience? Like if you went into a museum and then left one and you were like, 100% A plus, what would that feel like to you? What pops into my mind first is actually uh, Brooklyn Museum, first Saturday Pride there was one that I went to probably four years ago and there was an MC who was like probably a drag queen who was like, put your hands up and everyone <laughs> putting their hands up. That moment of participation and willingness is the ideal museum experience because it wasn't just like a submission to a moment or submission to what an institution is trying to do to your body, but a real act of participation and an exchange of energy um, especially to like in this moment where people are putting their hands up in protest, like that moment of engagement to me is something that like was just so sweet in the moment um, because that's not like that type of programming doesn't happen at every institution. And also a community's willingness to participate and freedom to participate and perhaps a level of safety that people felt to participate is somewhat of a rarity in some cases. So I think that's the, that's the one that I always kind of fondly remember. There's a moment in your book where you talk about when you discover who Basquiat was. Um, and you're like, the first instinct is like, oh, it was the black Andy Warhol. And then you realize that, you know, like no black artist is like the black anything else. He's his own person existing in this space. And um, I have a lot of Basquiat shit, you know. Uh, I mean, feel, I feel like Sean John has made <laughs> Basquiat clothes. I'm wearing like I'm wearing Basquiat sweatpants right now. Um, but then, like you, we also know, you know, like a Kahinde Wiley. Are there um, black artists who you feel like should be talked about in the canon? The way that, like, when you think of like a black museum experience, you immediately think of like a Basquiat. Yeah, I think knowing the work of Kahinde Wiley or Micheline Thomas or Amy Sherald or Jean-Michel Basquiat or Tyler Mitchell or um, Nakia Brown or Kentura Davis, like people who have in some way appeared in pop culture, you know, like there's some level mm -hmm. of art celebrity that has now, and, this, and not now as a new thing, but right now are arriving in pop culture in a way that's really exciting. Um, but I, there's no shame. There's no shame in wherever you start. Like learning about Basquiat galvanized me to start Black Contemporary Art, my Tumblr, which where it, then there were 5,000 artists shared through the committee of curators that worked on that platform. Mm -hmm. um, so knowing one, there's no shame in knowing one. Mm -hmm. uh, knowing one and sharing it with your friends, there's no shame in that. So I want to start there. Uh, but then I think in general there's no limit to how many that you can know and that limitlessness can be intimidating. But that's why I start by saying like the first one, the first cut is the deepest. That's um, <laughs> Stevens. <laughs> I've been singing all these ridiculous like white women songs and I'm getting so much shade for friends, but I'm like, look, justice for Jewel. Like y'all don't know what I know and what brings me joy. Jewel, underrated singer, I find. She's a brilliant singer. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. She was singing for all of us. 
<laughs> Her hands, they are all of ours, okay? Yeah. Well, uh, Kimberly, I was very excited to get you on the podcast finally. I was glad we had this um, Leo link up. Mm, mm. Leo season. <laughs> well, thank you all so much. This was really such a pleasure. Thanks for coming. Oh, thank you, Kimberly. Of course. And make we sure you, you get... Kimberly's book, This Is What I Know About Art. It is selling out. It is selling like hotcakes on the internet. Uh, So go and find it. Anywhere you'd like. (laughs) Escape to Ocean City, Maryland. And discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. Pride Month is upon us. Queer reality television has never been so prominent, inclusive, and structurally varied. HBO Max's newly released Legendary is a voguing competition, borrowing from Drag Race and shining a light on the ball community featured in films like Paris is Burning and other television shows like Pose. Um, I say other television shows like Pose as if there is a plethora of... Pose is a standalone girl. She's on her own. Maybe on Soul Train, somebody accidentally vogued once. (laughs) (laughs) Love the voguing scenes in Blue Bloods. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then there is also We're Here, which puts the most famous alum of Drag Race in a format popularized by Queer Eye which has also just released its fifth season on Netflix. And then, of course, we have already a new season of Drag Race (laughs) upon us because Drag Race is never not on. It really is. And also, they apparently have always filmed seasons a year in advance. Like, this was apparently filmed last summer. I can't believe how long these things are delayed. I also then don't understand why the finale would have been at home. Was this one season where they just did it recently? No, they always do the finale recent oh yeah new to the club you know and honestly very excited at the pace that this is going because drag race is such an addictive show and i'm sorry miss jada but i'm ready for another one i'm ready for another queen to win god that video of jada (laughs) did we talk about that video last week of jada getting that welcome parade yeah with bowen yeah in passing right okay i mean that still remains essential reviewing on twitter but um it's midwest canon now (laughs) yes quite quite let's get into legendary first and deal with the um elephant in the room she's back um or sorry um i guess that's not body positive uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, I was wondering where this thing was going yeah. um, jamila jamil when legendary was first announced i think we all remember the um Le backlash. <laughs> Flurry of commentary about whether or not Jamila should be involved in this show. Mm. Uh, 
And um, now that it's actually come out and I've had the time to see it, um, great gowns. <laughs> As in, her stylist is putting in a lot of work. Uh, Jamila, on the other hand, is completely inessential to this show. Yeah. It's also one of those things where not only is she inessential in terms of commentary, but the deal is she's one of the hosts and judges of this voguing show but also it's just you don't need four people on a judging panel mm. drag race the way they do judging like they cut really quickly between people so you can do four people but this show is more like american idol where everybody gets an individual moment to judge and as paula abdul said on the season they brought on cara diaguardi to the press she says this show does not work with four people on the judging mm-hmm. panel so i mean it's, <laughs> it is a fact known drag race does quick jokes with each time and um there's there's no way like in an american idol or even with legendary to make quick commentary because you're watching the performance and it feels like they've almost sherry pied jamila because i feel like (laughs) even the most recent episodes they just don't even show her reaction to some of the performances i love that you have now coined sherry pie as the word for when you very strategically takes footage take footage out after a cancellation drop that's perfect put it in books but i okay i will at risk of sounding horrible i have not even seen legendary yet but i do remember the conversation around jamila being oh she is raising the audience poll because of who she is and i want to meet anyone who is like i'm gonna watch legendary to see my favorite judge jamila jamil like who who was actually pulled to the show because of her that's always been a push and pull with these judging shows right you know particularly when you have someone like ellen and then you have um like britney on x factor or even when like j-lo joined american idol um it's this idea that the fans of someone will follow them to Mm -hmm. a television show and watch it and I just don't know that that's ever been the case. (laughs) Shows like this require you to be, as Ellen found out the hard way, negative. Mm -hmm. Like, the show doesn't work unless you're giving hard criticism, unless you're ruining somebody's day. And these people, specifically someone like Jamila Jamil, who, you know, is an Instagram-based, Twitter-based person, I think she's uh, a big part of what she does is... Uh, kind of whoop up positivity yeah. like it's like mm. it's not part of her brand to be like and i'll tell you who sucks unless it's somebody who is you know cl- classically sucky like a racist or yeah a or like a yeah. kim Something kardashian like or someone that we've all collectively decided that we hate upon together so mm. it's nothing really unique about it and i'm not even judging jamila for that aspect of it but i just want to know what she brings to the show what do you bring girl yeah it's because uh, so the other judges are um Laomi, who um, has been part of the uh, ballroom scene for years, you know, if you remember, she was first sort of in the public consciousness on television when she was part of Vogue Evolution on America's Best Dance Crew. Great show. Um, Yes. Um, Go back and watch the poor uh, quality. Um, They're not um, high definition, but um, clips of Vogue Evolution performing on that show. Because if you all thought that Tyra Banks was wild, uh, you have not seen Lil Mama on a judging panel. And there is a point when Laomi, a trans woman, uh, has an argument with the rest of her team and storms off. And Lil Mama says to her, Now, 
you were born a man, but you are trying to be a woman. <laughs> and if you're going to be a woman, don't be a bird. Be a lady. <laughs> <laughs> What year did eight? What, what year did this come out? Two thousand eight. <laughs> oh, how I long. Mixed metaphors time. within transphobia. Within, like, don't be a bird. First of all, some of us have no choice. I get called Sam the Eagle all the time, so don't even level that at me. Let alone Laomi. Uh, but Laomi is great, and that's what she's talking about. There's uh, Megan the Stallion, who is honestly just happy to be there. And if you are gonna have an outsider. Megan at least feels more fun and natural. Yeah, let it be a rapper. Let let it be someone who makes money off talking shit so that when they do talk shit, it makes sense. I think that like by the third episode, she's just sort of like, I love how she's just doing lounging in the chair, sitting how a gay person sits in a chair, um, <laughs> which is not like normal people are doing. She's just yeah. like leaning to the side, legs over the side. Like she's just so comfortable at this point by the third episode that I'm like, okay, I get it. Um, Law Roach is another judge who I could actually take or leave Law, unfortunately, because he is giving you a lot of Simon Cowell um, to the point where I don't think it's absolutely necessary. And he doesn't actually come from ballroom. He's a celebrity designer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's very Stylist. much acting the part of yeah. somebody in Paris's burning or pose who's like, you know, that's a woman's jacket or that's a man's jacket or whatever and screaming about technicalities. I always, I always imagine yeah. that the people who produce this show kind of sit down with the judges and are like, here are the tropes of every judging show. Let's assign you parts <laughs> and let's figure out who's the Paula, who's the Simon, who is whatever they're mapping off of. Mm-hmm. But the show itself is pretty fun. I will say that the first episode and the third episode, the format is a lot like America's Best Dance Crew in that the houses come out and they sort of perform and they mix in elements of Vogue Mm -hmm. with dance uh, and other ballroom aspects. But I prefer the second episode where um, they actually walked in categories. Categories are what makes voguing the most fun. It's the most trenchant part of voguing, I think, where it's sort of mocking everyday society, mocking um, richness, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that does bother me about the show a little bit is I kept thinking of America's Best Dance Crew because of how well it's filmed. And (laughs) and also, um, uh, So You Think You Can Dance. But Uh this show, Legendary, there are times when... They're filming like a, an entire hallway of voguers, basically. There'll be a whole bunch in a troupe, and you're not really seeing it. It's like too dim, et cetera. So I feel like that's something that needs to be hammered out a little bit, which is weird because the show is so expensive looking. Yeah. But there are performances where I feel like I didn't glean the whole thing because it's supposed to be aimed at the four judges who are sitting in a row, like they're at a fashion show, mm-hmm. and that's not where the we are as the audience. The rest of the audience is also in the round, so it is weird when they're aiming things where the judges are sitting, but um, I will say that I really do enjoy the show. It's been fun to watch. Loved it. And I love all the personalities. It's also, it's one of those things like when Project Runway premiered and there were nine different gay guys on a season, but they were all funny in a different way and they all had different aesthetics. Voguing, normally on a show like this, there would be one pack of Vogers or one Voguer on So You Think You Can Dance or whatever. And to see that even Voguing has several dimensions in it via these teams Mm. is an education. Mm. Yeah. Um, you're seeing different queer people, trans people, gender non-conforming people, yeah. um, and the majority of them are um, non-white. So I think that it is such a breath of 
fresh air in a way that it feels like it is finally centering um, these stories instead of having them be the one team that's in existing amongst these other teams. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see We're Here with Shangela and Bob the Drag Queen and Eureka, which is the best use of Eureka from Drag Race I've seen mm-hmm. so far? It is. I mean, and that's also the point I was getting at, too, is that we've seen so much of Queer Eye over the years where the concept is the Fab Five goes into a town and originally they just used to like make over like a straight person. Like it was Queer Eye for the straight guy. And now the new Netflix Queer Eye, like it will mix in um, non-straight people, but it still feels like the concept of Queer Eye is to sanitize queerness for America's consumption. Yeah, And we're here takes that concept where it has those three drag queens like go into a small town in America, but it's for the first time I feel like it is centering queer stories and centering the people in these stories to um, improve their lives uh, and the lives of the community around them in a way that Queer Eye is not able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And I think it also helps that we already know who these drag queens are, right? You know? So, like, you don't have moments where it's like, how is Bobby responding to um, this thing? Like, you know, where they're going into this church? Or, you know, like, how is Karamo dealing with um, something he's finding out here? You know? Like, the story stays squarely on the people that they are helping. Yeah, there's this, you know, interesting quality to, I think, what is like the digestibility of what shows can be on TV and what what programming we, we receive, because I love We're Here, I love Queer Eye, I love watching Drag Race, but it reminds me time and time again that, one, we have to go in this like order of who's allowed to have television shows, like it's, first it's gay men helping straight men, and then it can finally be people helping with drag and there's still a lack of shows where gay women are allowed to you know exist in queerness and i went well hey i'll hold my tongue because we did have the real l world <laughs> excuse me <laughs> we did have the <laughs> real l word even though that was a horrendous show i'm not gonna say there's no lesbian programming but there really isn't any queer tv that i can watch that represents non-binary people queer people of my world it's just sad mm-hmm. to be reminded of that when i watch we are here, you know, a show where they investigate these small towns and find uh, the occasional queer person or like maybe somebody who wouldn't try drag otherwise, like a straight man, whatever. Like it, yeah. it's it's them mixing it up in the community. One thing that did occur to me is, and you touched on this a little bit, Ira, when people like Shangela are like really trying hard to inspire these people and like shower them with love, like they're constantly hugging them and stuff. It's cool to see it and it's cool to see that love received. Mm -hmm. But I also think of someone like Richard Simmons, who his entire career was inspiring people for a living. His entire Mm -hmm. career was giving everything of himself basically in every social interaction he had. And now he's this, you know, weird hermit person who I think is over people. And a, a part of me I know like someone like Shangela is superhuman and capable of this job and Bob the drag queen is equally as great, but it's like everybody deserves to be inspired in a way. And I feel like they're a, a part of me feels for them that they have to bear the brunt of so much hardship in these small towns in a way and have to tap into these people. You know, it's like, they're not licensed social workers or anything. Mm. No, only Karamo is. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so maybe this is the quote unquote empath in me, but just even the wisest among our community, I think needs to be looked out for. So mm-hmm. that's on my mind when I watch mm-hmm. this show. 
I get that. And well, there's also one episode in particular where uh, I think it was the one set in Branson, uh, Missouri, where um, they meet a gay person there who has a partner. Um, and he just talks about how there aren't a lot of other out queer people in his community, you know? So people come and see the performance at the end after they teach them all how to do drag or improve their drag. There's actually one episode mm. where there were three local drag queens who were helped with their drag. And when people came to see this Branson show, he said at the end, um, you know, spurred by Shangela, to say, you know, like... Um, if you are queer and living in this city um, and you feel like you don't have a community, come and find me, like, and I'll be your friend, you know, because I have my partner here and we're living our um, lives right now um, and we would love for other people to feel as comfortable as we are um, being who they are. Uh, and that's one aspect that I really like about the show. It feels like they are building queer communities in these cities whenever they go you know it's like when they pick these different people to either help or improve uh it feels like those three people didn't know each other beforehand and now they do know each other after this show and maybe they'll be friends or if not you know interact with one another in their small towns and by the way they find on more than one occasion specifically the one you were talking about about the community that had drag queens in it already some pretty rad gay people. There's this one guy who did makeup who, to me, he looked like he was like already to be on America's Next Top Model, <laughs> let alone like Drag yeah. Race or something like that. So, I mean, that was kind of cool, too, just seeing like, you know, you'd think all of us are, you know, Louis Vertels or Ira Madison's or Aida Osmonds who start out in the middle of the country and like venture to the coast. Right. But, you know. Um, so when I watch a show like this, I feel like it's a parallel life I once lived or something, you know, mm. where like, oh, I stayed there and like I was still myself. Right. You know, they stay in these towns um, because they have families there, you know, or like their job is there. And it's you know, not everybody wants to live in New York or L.A. or SF, or Chicago, you know, and um, I've cried multiple times during these episodes. I think that it's just a very good and very well done show. Um, and I can't recommend like we're here enough to be honest and i wasn't and by the way i watched we are here on hbo max which as aida pointed out earlier is currently that girl <laughs> uh not just because of this show the classic movie selection blew my mind oh yes there's also i watched a little shop the other day and i watched umbrellas of Cherbourg, you know with Catherine Deneuve. Um, oh, have I you heard of her? Mm, I don't. I don't think the listeners of Keep It have heard from her in quite a bit. Okay. But uh, oh, she's yes. still there. Love uh, this jump to 2018. Keep it. <laughs> I will say though that HBO Max is that confusing girl um, because <laughs> she is um, she is streaming non-conforming, mm -hmm. right? Because I feel like everything HBO is just automatically on HBO Max, and I don't know the difference anymore now. Because mm -hmm. right. I had HBO Now on my Apple TV, and it just magically changed to HBO Max mm. overnight. So everything that's on HBO is on HBO Max on my Apple TV, and then also the HBO Max shows are also on it. And HBO Now is now HBO Then, which doesn't <laughs> HBO ago. <laughs> HBO Later. <laughs> has uh <laughs> the next season of divorce i don't know <laughs> anyway uh when we're back keep it
Well, for the first time, I will be introducing Keep It. I know we have a lot of things that we probably to complain about. So, Lewis, what's your Keep It? Uh, my Keep It is to a story that I believe brought most of my people, that is to say white queer people, joy over the weekend, and it left me feeling absolutely nothing. Um, A porn star sex worker, Sean Harding, over the weekend tweeted, there is a homophobic Republican senator who is no better than Trump who keeps passing legislation that is damaging to the LGBT and minority communities. Every sex worker I know has been hired by this man, wondering if enough of us spoke out, it could get him out of office. And in a follow-up tweet... He uses the abbreviation LG to describe this person. Well, um, everybody is familiar with the alphabet. Uh, <laughs> leapt to the conclusion that he was talking about Lindsey Graham, who does, in fact, fucking suck. And soon, immediately after that, probably because of the words L and G, the nickname Lady G was born to describe Lindsey Graham. Now, again, I want to reiterate that I hate Lindsey Graham. I especially hate watching him stump very hard for Donald Trump years after he is on the record calling him every name in the book, calling him an idiot, basically. But I have to tell you something, and it's up to Sean Harding what he wants to share about himself and and, and rally others to share. I thought people were reveling way too hard in the idea that somehow there would be a gotcha moment in outing Lindsey Graham, when the fact is Republicans suck anyway. (laughs) Straight people being homophobic is extremely harmful and no better than somebody who was doing it because they're closeted. Mm -hmm. So I felt like the thrust of this story ended up being, let's revel in the fact that we're calling this guy lady, while at the same time sort of letting straight people off the hook for being homophobic. And to me, what that says is we aren't comfortable really holding them to a standard, to saying, Mm -hmm. actually, you are actively sucking, you are actively ruining lives, and there doesn't need to be this extra layer of hypocrisy to make somebody ashamed for being homophobic. I think uh, it just put the wrong taste in my mouth. I thought a lot of straight people were enjoying saying the phrase Lady G a little bit too much, Mm -hmm. you know? So keep it to whatever we thought we were going to get out of that. And I'm not particularly curious about Lindsey Graham or what he does in his spare time besides fucking up lives. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, I I don't feel any um, sadness over people mocking Lindsey Graham because I do think he is a monster but I would offer that him actually turning out to be closeted uh, says more about the Republican Party anyway because it shows that he is still pushing anti-gay rhetoric and there are clearly people then within the Republican Party who know that he is a gay person right and it's like it's no shock to me that there are many closeted people in the Republican Party, you know, who um, we've seen it time and time and again, who just sort of um, are hypocrites publicly and not just in terms of like gay people, you know, it's like how many Republicans like pay for abortions on the side, right? <laughs> While also pushing legislation that controls women's bodies. And it, it, it would just, to me, suggest that there's this even more craven part of the Republican Party where Everything that they believe and everything that they say is just a fucking lie. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just to control people's lives. It's just to subjugate other people. We can be gay, um, but 
we want to control the lives of other people who are gay. I also want to add that what you just said about Republicans probably paying for abortions on the sly, et cetera, that is directly hypocritical because they're arguing against legislation regarding abortion, whereas there actually isn't something technically illegal about being a gay person who doesn't want gay people to have rights. You know what I mean? Like if you you can be gay and not think everybody should have gay marriage where, you know, so I think weirdly the the definition of hypocrite needs to be outlined a little bit too here. True. You know, it's not like he's pushing sodomy laws. <laughs> Precisely. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I will just say that at first when I saw Lady G trending, I thought it was about Lady Gaga. And I was like, okay, girl, we are talking about Chromatica. <laughs> Week two. Yeah. <laughs> Enigma has caught on with me from that album, by the way. It's a great fucking song. Mm-hmm. I think Sign From Above is my favorite. Interesting. Even the Elton part, which sounds a little bit, shall we say, vocalized or something. Oh, there is nothing more I love than uh, Elton hopping on an overdramatic theatrical pop song. It reminds me a lot of the final song on Fall Out Boy's album, Save Rock and Roll. He, he just does these things, and the video for that is very dramatic, and it's what I imagine the Sign From Above video would or maybe will look like when all this is over um yeah i really i really really like the song it's great i love when he collabs with black artists (laughs) 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 this is another week where people were discovering that pete wentz's maternal grandfather is jamaican which i feel like oh here we go again someone discovers this on the internet like every six months that man is a negro let him be (laughs) let him be look at the curl in his hair there's a like an eighth of an inch of a curl there there's something okay ira what is your well i was gonna have two keep it's but one of them has already been resolved as we were recording who who i was going to say keep it to vanderpump rules it had recently resurfaced that cast members Stasi Schroeder and Kristen Doty called the cops on uh, cast member Faith Stowers and reported her to police for a crime that she'd had nothing to do with just because they didn't like her. Nice. Um, they <laughs> saw her in a club and claimed that she was this black woman who had been robbing people in the news uh, who looked nothing like Faith. Um, and we're gleefully talking about um, calling the cops on her. And um, my keep it was going to be to white Bravo fans, particularly you know, <laughs> the, the white women who I'm sure are in Facebook groups, uh, I'm, I'm in a couple secretly, mm-hmm. who defend the things that these people do. Uh, there's always a moment where like a white celebrity will do something racist and then they'll tweet an apology. And then their white fans are in the comments saying, thank you, we forgive you, et cetera, as <laughs> if it's their place to accept the apology. <laughs> and um, I'm a Madonna so fan. Would... I don't need to be taught about this. Thank you. This is, this is my life. Every, every day I write a new thank you to Madonna. <laughs> so there was a lot of that going on for Stassi and Kristen. Uh, but Bravo broke their silence today and fired Stassi oh. and Kristen from Vanderpump Rules. They also ousted cast members Max Boyens and Brett Caprioni. They had racist tweets from the past surface before the season started. They had already taped the eighth season of Vanderpump Rules, and there was no way to edit them out of the show since they were new cast members. It's not a Sherry Pie situation where you could easily just like cut them from things like 
in an ensemble cast reality show, like they're part of storylines. And if you cut them out, like the show's just <laughs> not going to make any sense. So I am um, pleasantly surprised that Bravo actually went ahead and did this. Uh, and I think that maybe um, things are sort of like changing in terms of brands and like what people are willing to associate themselves with, you know, because I feel like what there's these real housewives. I feel like so many of them are probably like Trump supporters right? and shit, you know, but like at least they probably keep it quiet enough. But I feel like during moments like this, where every brand is jumping out there to say Black Lives Matter <laughs> and we are doing our best um, to listen to black people and our employees and want to do better going forward, to have not fired them would have meant that like <laughs> I wouldn't be watching that shit anymore, yeah. you know? And I would have a very hard reckoning with being able to continue to watch Bravo after that. So I hope this is the beginning of changes, um, you know? And it wasn't just lip surface. Mm -hmm. One of the other brands this week that was like, we support Black Lives Matter was the gay porn site Sean Cody. Which is among the just... <laughs> Just whitest nouns. I mean, take the, <laughs> take the names Sean and Cody, just period. Now, multiply that. Yeah. It's like the, the term Sean Cody is basically slang for white gay people at this point. Like, you can use it as a descriptor for, like, a party. You can be like, well, looks like they're shooting a Sean Cody film up in there. <laughs> say, like, it's all white people. So the It became, like, a meme when, you know, two cute white guys are in a picture to just stamp the Sean Cody emblem on it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but Black Lives Matter. <laughs> to quote one of my favorite needy memes of the moment, it's getting weird. <laughs> it's getting weird. It's, especially since the Sean Cody thing came out like yesterday. I mean, like we, We're a week past the protests starting. Mm -hmm. um, and if you, you've been taking like a week to form your statement, and that's all you can write, like, three <laughs> paragraphs where it's like, we are committed to black people and Black Lives Matter. I'm like, please keep it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't need every brand ever to start coming out with a statement, especially when it's not going to be as good as Ben & Jerry's. Anyway. Aida, what is your keep it today? Okay, this week, my keep it is to North Carolina Republicans who just blocked an effort to pass a bill protecting young people from anti-LGBTQ conversion therapy. And the bill had supermajority bipartisan support, but it hasn't even moved out of the committee. It was held up without even a hearing because Republican leadership of the North Carolina General Assembly wanted it defeated. Like, So for those of you who don't know, I'm sure a lot of you do, because I'm sure a lot of you are queer, but um, conversion therapy is no joke it's this like horrendous antiquated procedures kids get electric shock they get yelled at verbally abused all of all of these different types of aversion techniques that um they use to convert them from uh, you guessed it being gay so uh, to, it like forces them to psychologically associate these negative traits and to paint homosexuality with a very very ugly brush but um north carolina North Carolina's been doing this shit, though. Like, back in 2016, they passed legislation that made it so that you couldn't use your gender identity to decide which bathroom you're going into, and that was only overturned last year. And right now, 15 states and D.C. are the ones who have said no to conversion therapy, but North Carolina and 35 other states, you could probably guess, I'm sure we're from, the three of us are from states that are supporting conversion therapy still, but... um. 
Yeah, there's the, the, these are the only states that still haven't said no to conversion therapy. And Roy Cooper and the other Democrats in North Carolina are trying to get this passed, but it's still stuck in the committee. So we're in a position now that we we want to be able to help convert these different st- convert was the wrong word. Uh, <laughs> we want to help change these red states <laughs> turning into blue states because they are battleground states. So um, we can help flip. North Carolina blew this November through Vote Save America's new program called Adopt a State. And North Carolina is one of the six battleground states where we can directly support the work of organizers and volunteers and candidates no matter where you live. So go to votesaveamerica.com slash adopt to sign up. I chose North Carolina and you can pick one too. And you'll get everything you need to make a big difference this November. Help those kids, please. Listen, I um, obviously love to support North Carolina, um, <laughs> and I get them very anti-conversion therapy, but I will also just say, you know, dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, um, <laughs> live your best life in peace and security, but, you know, like, <laughs> trans women are just not women, um, as J.K. Rowling says, uh. um, so I can't support you on gender identity. Not here. <laughs> Not here. That, that, I'm kidding. That this is a- <laughs> rebuttal from um, Daniel Radcliffe to J.K. Rowling's newly loud turf views yes. um, was uh, really cool. Also, again, British celebrities, for some reason, British male celebrities tend to be way funnier than they need, need to be, like cooler than you would expect. I, I never understand mm-hmm. it, and I'm always thankful. Yeah. I'm not even bothering to make that a keep it this week because I th- just read Daniel Radcliffe's response. That is perfect. Uh, he did it via the Trevor Project, uh, which I think is great because that, you know, uh, will help uh, young trans people um, know that they have his support. And it's through an organization like the Trevor Project, which I admire the work that they do. Uh, and that's really the only response you need to J.K. Rowling. Also, f- fuck J.K. Rowling. Who cares what this bitch fuck thinks? Fuck J.K. Oh, yeah. Rowling. Fuck J.K. Fuck Rowling. her, bro. Yes. And it's not new either. And it's just wild that she continues to tweet about this shit for no reason. No one's asking her. Mm-hmm. Like, she's just out of the blue will all of a sudden just be like, by the way, I hate trans women. They're not women. And it's like, girl, what is going on in your home? Yeah, bitch, you wrote about middle schoolers on broomsticks. I don't give a fuck what you think about people. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, shut up. It's particularly jarring just in this moment where, like, you know, we're all marching for all these other different yeah. things. And for her to come in with this extreme point of view, this hateful point of view, felt really, like, focus-stealing and... Very strange. And she's harping on it. Yes, harping on it. It's not fun to talk about anymore because she's wrong for a multitude of reasons. Like, there's no way to even have that conversation. She's just an idiot. So. Glad we got that. Block her. Fuck JK. Block block (laughs) JK Rowling and just like, because she's going to keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. She's been doing it for well over a year and. Stop letting her trend. Now I feel like she just feels emboldened to really just go for it and we shouldn't give her the fucking time of day. Holler. Bye. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, um, not in my Pride Month. Mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, thanks again to Kimberly Drew for joining us. And uh, this has been Keep It. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess. The one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland. 
and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.